I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hey, Monica. Hey, Jennifer. All right, what are we talking about on today's episode? So today we're diving back into one of our most popular topics, green building and biophilic design with Mary Devage. She's a leading expert on both of these topics. Mary was formerly the director of global design at Google, where she was responsible for establishing the design vision of Google's large-scale campuses. Her passion really lies at the intersection of nature, health, and design, and she brought that passion to the many projects she has worked on throughout her career. She's also been recognized as a Living Building Challenge Hero, a LEAD Fellow, and she received the IIDA's Leadership Award of Excellence in 2017. Yes, and like so many of our guests, access to nature early on in her childhood was a fundamental starting point for her career working in biophilic design. Nowadays, Mary serves on the board of the Biophilic Institute and the advisory board of the International Living Future Institute's Biophilic Design Initiative and is working on a number of really exciting projects. It was really fun to catch up with Mary at this stage of her career since she's so focused on her advocacy work, especially where it concerns expanding access to green space and scaling biophilic ideas and principles. So let's get to our interview with Mary Devaj. Hey, Mary. Thank you for joining us today. How are you? I'm great. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this topic. We are beyond thrilled that you're with us because we have so much to get to. So with that being said, we always ask our guests, can you give us a little bit of background about your story and how you got to where you are today? Well, I feel like I've already lived several lives, but they all, <laughs> they're always in each kind of phase, there was this connection with nature and it's been an important part of my growth. I am a California native. My family was a ranching family in Northern California. So I spent my summers and until I was 18 years old on a ranch, very kind of deep in the wilderness near Lassen National Park. And always really in small kind of cow camp areas where we basically spent our lives outdoors. When I moved to the Bay Area, I went to school here and began to work here, which is in the early days of the tech campuses. I've always worked in the South Bay on technology projects, my whole career over several decades, I really was homesick for that. I missed that access, that easy access with nature and just having it part of my life. So as I got into design and I spent the first decade and a half in an architectural and design and architectural practices, ended up as a partner in a regional firm here, and then really got the sense that I needed to move towards sustainability. And and that was in the late 90s, early 2000s, and and I started my practice. But I took a sabbatical during that period to kind of figure out what I wanted to do next. And fortunately, was introduced to 
Bill Browning and Jennifer Seal at the Rocky Mountain Institute who were working on biophilia. And so I volunteered really for that year and helped to organize their biophilia library. I had been introduced to it as part of a project that I worked on in the 90s that was a Bill McDonough architectural project. And the firm I was with, RMW, was doing the interiors. So I had met Bill Browning earlier and I knew, oh, wow, this is an answer. This is like bringing together the things that I had loved most, both in my life and in design. At that time in the valley here, in the tech companies, the photographs that we see today of those kind of like a sea of white sadness, one of my colleagues used to call it, of (laughs) of partitions and cubicles was really the norm. So it was very hard to describe to people and to clients why it was so important to do something different. But I just knew in my gut that it was necessary. So I had that experience. And then as I started my practice, Google was my first client. And luckily, this was in 2003, Luckily, the founders believed in this too. They knew and they, they that access to nature, connection with nature. And I think it's really that we're all drawn to life. And it's pretty obvious to really good designers that you need to do that. But what happened in that was that the engineering mentality wanted data and wanted science behind it. And that it wasn't just intuitive design rhetoric, but that we use the best science. And it was really, really hard to answer that question at that time. So over the years, in those first years, you can look back at the Google spaces. There was always some kind of element of nature inside the spaces when they were mainly taking over, we used to call them hermit crabs, when they were taking over space of other organizations and really redoing the interiors. There was always some element of nature. But in the later years, as we started to really work on larger campus scale, urban scale, master plan, it became apparent that each time we started the process with a new design firm, we needed something more concrete than that with a more of a solid scientific basis. So that's really kind of how I got from my childhood to the work that I've been able to do on biophilia. Well, and it's interesting that the Google founders just kind of got it intuitively, but at the same time, they, or maybe all their executives needed the science and the proof behind it. What did you guys do to sort of gather that proof? I know Bill's done a ton of research Was he a part of that or how did you decide and what were you monitoring or what data were you gathering to get that sort of scientific data? That's a really good question. And basically what we did was to look out there and see who had already been doing this work that we could call upon. And we were able to put together actually a really great team. And it was, I have to say that it was led by our project manager, so to speak, for this was Sarah Architects, who had also already been doing a lot of this work. But Terrapin Bright Green was selected to help to create the guidelines, but we leaned heavily upon consultants to the team. Judy Heerwagen, Stephen Kellert was also part of that. And there were others too. Bree Sarte of Sherwood Engineers tried to help us to figure out how do you do it at at the larger landscape 
scale too. So there were many people who gave input, but Cherapin really helped us to define what the guidelines would be. Because as I said before, it is often embedded in great design, but each time we would start a new project with a different architect, we would have to kind of try to articulate all over again what we had already learned. And if you look around in the South Bay area in San Francisco, South of San Francisco, where there are a lot of industrial buildings, really, we've kind of turned our back on the Bay over the years. There's not a lot of inspiration in nature at first glance. So a lot of times when we were working with architects from all over the world, a lot of times they would just bring with them their kind of preconceived notion. And it wasn't right. It was like, it was some nature from some other place that they thought was beautiful. So really those guidelines were meant to create something foundational that all of the firms would not have to start from scratch and we wouldn't have to explain the same thing over and over again. And as Google grew, that was not possible for us to always be in the room to have that personal conversation. You know, we'd love to talk about this all day long. (laughs) So (laughs) when you're saying about putting that together, so really education is the key to biophilia and biophilic design, would you say? Like that's the key to all of like the success of understanding of why it's important. Is that what you think is what people are really looking for is that education that you need to share? I do think that's really important. I think it's critical. I should say that those early guidelines evolved over the years. They were not right. And we would struggle with them. I mean, I mentioned Brie Sarte earlier. We were trying to apply them to a master plan. And he just came back to me and said, my team can't do this. But these guidelines <laughs> don't apply at that scale. We got to work on this. And so okay. then we would iterate. It's kind of the idea, really, it's a Google idea and probably many high-tech companies have launched and iterate. So yes, I think education is really important, but I also feel like there is still so much that we don't know, which is what I hope that you all continue to do, is that we had some science about what makes us drawn to nature, but there's still now that we have these projects, there's still a great need to collect the data, see which elements of biophilic design have the greatest impact. So I would say it's really kind of bookended by Do you all ever, do you know Swarm Rules from the book by Daniel Goleman? No. It is first, know your impact. Okay. Share what you learn and then favor improvement. I just think those are a beautiful, beautiful context for what needs to happen in biophilia and it's taken from nature. So I really think it's those three things. I love that. And so as you guys were putting together the foundational guidelines, you recognized you needed a scale. And and we've talked about that with different interviews of from the, you know, a room, you can do biophilic design in a room or even in a product, right? A product line. But then when you get into sort of a campus urban city planning, it's a very different implementation. So today, obviously you're not at Google anymore, but you were there in-house, I think close to 10 years. And prior to that, you were with them for many prior. Did you start by saying like, you know, in the green building world, right? Lead is a very well-known, you know, it's pretty commonplace to understand what that is. Most commercial buildings, it's almost a requirement to build anything new these days. Were you able to at least start with something like that and say, you know, lead has these four things, but we're going to build on it or... 
International Living Future with their pedal. Like, where did you start and where is Google now and or the built environment now? Where should people start when they're doing a project? We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out? What's that, Monica? The (laughs) Biophilic Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes. And I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Sarah B for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. Well, it's very different now because there are tools. And I would say that in the early lead, there was not a lot. And in those first years, there was not. But from the very beginning, when the Living Building Challenge was introduced by ILFI, biophilia was part of their guidelines. And I will say because of that, we always were interacting with them on what they meant by biophilia, I was one who would, and I also sit on the biophilic advisory board for ILFI still. They were seeing the same thing that we were seeing with all of their projects is that there needed to be more guidance. So I want to give them a lot of credit because in Google, beyond me, I mean, I was early in the conversation, but there is an amazing team that has continued that work and created habitat guidelines and went way far beyond what I was doing. Google, in partnership with ILFI, used Google's biophilic guidelines as a foundation. Then ILFI developed them further, and now they are available free on the ILFI website as the biophilic toolkit. So anyone can access them, and they have this beautiful little card deck that describes the three elements of biophilic design, which I think are really terrific. What I love actually about this topic and some others in design is that I've been around long enough that you can look back and you can see that sometimes these things just take years. Sometimes they take decades. I still remember the first environ design where in the, sometime in the 90s where I heard them speak about biophilic design. And that really has been an interesting process when I look back over time, because often 
there's kind of an idea. It's more of an uh, it's more of an impression, an artist's idea. But then you have to develop the tools and the science later to make it more useful to a broader audience. And sometimes that takes decades. And I think it is yeah. the case with biophilia. I'm glad you said that too, because Monica and I talk about this all the time. But just like nature, nature takes it's, it's an evolution. It takes decades of not hundreds of years to really form into something big. And I think that's so interesting because that's so in line with like what it means to be biophilic or lead with biophilia in mind, because I think what your work has also taught us is like those desired outcomes are also not talked about as much because I think everyone's like, oh, let's build something. But what people aren't studying are really then taking into account are what are the desired outcomes that you might have been looking at? And did they actually meet the desired outcomes that you were expecting? Because that's something I don't think a lot of people look at or really like, okay, we're just going to put it up and there it is, it's done. But no one's really studying, studying those outcomes afterwards. That is such an important point because basically a lot of times biophilia is either used for healthcare settings or the work environment. And so, of course, the outcome is for the patient to recover more quickly, for the worker to really be able to do their best work in that environment to have it be a vibrant environment in the workplace. And those post-occupancy evaluations, collecting that data is really what I think we need more of now. So I think that's exactly right. Because if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. That's not, you know, I don't mm. know who I should attribute <laughs> that to. But it's the way it is. And you can get so off track with the wrong design features if you're not thinking about looking at it with the end in mind. It's a really great point. What are some of the, because you guys did do post-occupancy evaluations, what were some of the outcomes, the top ones that you saw in the Google spaces or just in general in commercial buildings? And then what maybe surprised you or what have you changed or what changed over the years that sort of got implemented further or maybe some things just weren't as impactful and they were sort of set aside? I can't really address that effectively. The workplace studies today over the last couple of years since COVID are so different now that I feel like anything that I would say would probably be misleading to some degree. But what I can say about the workplace in general is that there has always been, sometimes people don't notice or see in a survey the things that impact them the most. So it's kind of hard to get to. Like often they will talk about, let's just say glare, daylight and glare. Glare is the thing that's troubling me the most. But if you take that view away from them, to help with the glare, then they realize, oh my gosh, but I needed to have that place to rest my eyes during my work. But I would say that the complexity of daylight glare views is really, really a big issue to be solved. That's interesting. And, you know, maybe I'll ask something that's going to get us a little granular, but I'm sort of curious because there are studies that show, definitely in healthcare settings, that when you do have, and I'm looking out to a couple of windows here, you know, you do have view of nature, a tree, even if you just had a picture on the wall, it's beneficial. And so when 
the glare goes away, is it a difference in like, I'm actually literally removing the window, I'm putting up blinds that, you know, are opaque, or is there an ability to is I mean, I have no idea, is there glare free glass or you know that has its own little sunglass situation? <laughs> absolutely. Yes, absolutely. There are ways and every setting is different. The orientation of every it really starts with building orientation. In some of the buildings that we were working on, we just really focused on that northern orientation so that most of the views, the skylights that would be bringing in that northern light so that there wasn't as much glare. And now there are so many different solutions. There are great blind systems that are automatic that still help you to have a view. There are shade systems that can help you do that. But the bottom line is basically what you said earlier about you have to really understand the outcome that you're looking for, for your building. I also wanted to say that I think one of the most interesting design problems is first identifying what's bad and getting out, again, this is a Bill McDonough quote, but less bad and move toward the more good. So I think daylight and glare are a great example of that. Deal with those, give people great natural light with less glare, but then find a way to keep the view as well. And you can, it can be done, just has to be done thoughtfully. You know, at the beginning, in most cases, it can be done if it's done thoughtfully. Acoustics is another great example. All, all of those elements of indoor environmental quality, acoustics is another great example of that. Yeah, we had Bill on and went through his various, you know, design elements. And it is fascinating, the sound, how it can benefit you negatively and positively in so many different ways. When we talk about these biophilic guidelines or dare we say, biophilic design. Do you feel like that term biophilic design, which we're thrilled, has become so commonplace the past 18 to 24 you know, months? COVID, I think, is a huge reason for it. People sort of understand that connection to nature better. But I think also it's just being utilized more. Do you like that term? Or do you think of, is there a larger term? Does design incorporate landscape, architecture, city planning, or or is there a different term that you like or think we should be using? There really isn't. I mean, I use access to nature just about as much as I use biophilia. Biophilia has been not, it's not now because so many people understand it better, but it does, it's not a word that the average person immediately understands and connects with. So it often does take further explanation. Yeah. I have a question for you. Considering that when you're talking about doing less bad and more good, I think that has a lot to do with the term about thinking about sustainability. So I have a question for you because I think about this all the time that people are always talking about sustainability in building and creating products. But I always think that when you talk about sustainability and everything, we can't feel sustainability, but we can feel nature. So do you ever feel like we should be talking about nature rich or nature more like biophilia more than we are talking about sustainability? Or do you think we should talk about both through the same lens? I still have trouble. I have also have trouble with the word sustainability. It feels, again, like it was the wrong word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. and, but it got used in so many different ways. And now I hear more the words resilience or restorative or regenerative. 
there's confusion about those words too. So I'm not sure about the language, honestly. But what I do think is that there is so much polarity on the issue of sustainability or climate change, but there's not polarity on our love of nature. And I have an example of this that is is maybe not exactly relevant to our topic, but my family home that I talked about earlier was burned in the Dixie Fire last in, in oh, 2021. I'm so sorry. Oh, wow. Which is a sad, sad thing. There's always, though, a nature is a, nature after a fire is just such an interesting, it's interesting and, and it's good. You know, and the fire wasn't good, but how resilient nature is, is really great to see. What I will say, though, is that in that community, it was a very, and probably still is, a very kind of politically polarized group from ranchers to timber companies to people who own vacation homes and so on. Everybody comes together, though, after an event like this because they love the place and the natural environment so much. And I have really seen that as really a potential collective value that we have that could be really healing for us as we kind of struggle to figure out how do we move forward. I love that. Yeah, I love that too. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I like that you pointed out that biophilia, and again, we feel so strongly about it, that it is, it's not a polarizing concept. It's a love of nature and a connection to nature, and we all need it. But I do, I think that your story about the fire in your home is like the love of place can connect you and finding those communal values to bring us together is what we all need so desperately in so many ways. And so like Jen always does, like getting people outside is such a beautiful thing just to let them experience nature. And then all the work that you've done of thinking about like the built environment and how can we leverage nature into that so we feel good in this place that we spend 95% of our time, right? Indoors, unfortunately, as well as getting people outdoors more. But today, now, you know, you've seen so much change. And I do love the ILFI and their sort of biophilic guidelines. And I believe it's a pedal, right? There is a full biophilic pedal. So when you build a building and you go into the IFLI to get a certification, you could just go for the biophilic pedal, I believe, right? No, you have to achieve, you can't just do only one thing. You have to achieve one of the major. Tell us a little bit about that then. Tell us a little bit about this certification and how people can utilize it. And this has pr- traditionally been in large scale commercial buildings. Are they bringing it into the home? Oh, yeah. They, well, the early projects were all really small institutional projects. But I don't feel like I'm not the right person to give you the detail of Living Building Challenge certification at this sure. point because I may get you a little bit off track. We're going to get but, somebody on the program from IFLI to talk to us about their all the work that they're, their great work that they're doing. So just from your perspective, it's from the biophilic perspective. I think that would be great. Well, and the thing that I think is most, whether you're, you're looking for, and the thing about Living Building Challenge is it is an aspirational certification. So not every project is able to do it. But that tool, everyone can use that toolkit toward developing more biophilic, more projects that have real 
elements of biophilia that are going to have an impact. And I would say, and it's really broken up into three categories, direct nature, natural patterns, and places and culture. So what that means is that, is there access to real live nature in your environment? The natural patterns are more elements that could come from nature that remind us of nature, that look like nature, that feel like nature, that you still feel like you've, you've got some connection there. And then the last one, which I love, is places and culture. And the very last, I mentioned those cards before, the very last one is avoid placelessness. Oh, so I, I love say, that. I know. That's Don't great. you love it? And here's what I would say about it is that often what I would see I mean, really, I'm so grateful that I had like the first half of my career really as a practitioner in design and the second half reviewing the work of other amazing designers and firms. And what I would often see with even the best firms, and I mentioned this earlier, is that they didn't get that place piece. They would come to the South Bay, Silicon Valley with elements from some other nature somewhere else. And we would say, just live here a bit, just sit here a bit, just understand the best designers always do that and really look at the environment. For example, and there's a lot of press about this project because it just received its lead platinum plaque on Friday at the end of Green Build. But the Google Bayview campus was one of the projects that I feel is one of Google's best projects so far. It's over a million square feet, 1.1 million square feet right at the edge of the bay. And the first kind of passes at Biophilia, it was designed by Bjarke Ingels Group and Heather Wick Studios together. Early conversations, because they are not from the South Bay, I was so impressed with them because they just went out and spent time on that site and really, really absorbed it. And I still remember, I think the first day that he saw the site, Thomas Heatherwick saying, it's really about the place, isn't it? It's really about this place. And what we came to over time was that we had wetlands to the north of us and the bay to the north of us. And you hardly even know that when you usually drive around those industrial parks, but it's right there. And we had the beautiful eastern foothills to one side, oak woodlands to the other side, and then to the south, the redwoods. So we really used that orientation and the environment from that place for everything, for the design palettes on the interiors, for the landscaping design on the site. It became an orienting device, and you couldn't really work on the project without understanding it. So I know that the, I'm very grateful to be able to have worked on a project of that scale. Many projects are not of that scale. But I think that you can always, no matter how small the project, really understand that the context that you're in has some nature. There's something there that you can draw upon that makes you feel that you're part of that place. So I love it. Coming back to Living Building Challenge, I love it that they, that ILFI has been an advocate for this over the years, has continued to develop guidance and has something like avoid placelessness in the guidance because it's just, it. I have found it to be, earlier we were talking about the outcomes. I have found this to be one of the most important outcomes that you can achieve. Oh, I, I, that 
that touches a chord with me for sure. Because you think about the places and spaces you go and how they move you versus going somewhere that is placeless and just there's a void of any feeling, emotion, and bringing something else inside that doesn't even belong there feels awkward. Yeah. Well, when we talk about that a lot, just driving through the country, the world, you know, these suburbs and exurbs just they have no sense of place. You could be in anywhere USA. And a word I learned the other day was a strode. It's a road that is so big that you like can't really walk on it. It's just really to get cars through and it's just fast food and big commercial. And that's a huge part of the problem in the country, right? Is that we've built so poorly over the years without any real sense of place. So I love that. Can I just add something to that because I think you're so right. And I think often those, I'm going to use that word too now. I think those strodes end up cutting a place apart. And often those that have the least opportunity to advocate for themselves end up in the worst of places, often because of those unfortunate decisions about transportation in large roadways, freeways, and so on. And really, that's an, I, I failed to mention it earlier when we were talking about what are the outcomes we want. I really think advocacy for having biophilia and access to nature for everyone is one of the most important things that we can do right now. And I will send you this quote for your notes, but the U.S. Forest Service did a study, and I think there are other studies like this too. I just want to mention it because I feel like it's so important. Did a study on tree canopy a few years ago, and they learned that with just 10% more tree, this is in the city of Baltimore, this particular study, with just 10% more tree canopy, you reduce crime by 12%. Wow. It, it, we wow. all know about the healing quality of nature for those who have access to it. But really, our cities and places and making sure that everyone has access to it feels to me like one of the most important things that we can do right now. And it helps to solve the climate problem as well. So it's one of those virtuous solutions that we just I don't think we can advocate for it strongly enough. The strobe issue is one of the ones that just. It really yeah, I love that too. With. I've never heard I've never heard of that, Monica. But that I, when you said Strode, all I can think of that was looming in my head were all the strip malls. When you drive in certain parts of the world or the country, I should say, especially in the U.S., it's like a vastness of just strip malls. I'm like, what town are we even in? It's just a road with just like no people really that you can see, and there are no trees, and it's just parking lots and strip malls. And it's really sad. It's just sad to me. Yeah, yeah. So Mary, what are you working on today? You've left Google recently in the past year or so. What's happening? What's Mary up to? So my intent, and I have to say, I loved the time that I was at Google so much, but there was, I had just a, kind of an itch to work on advocacy and volunteer kinds of work. And then I'm fortunate enough to be able to do that. So I'm working on a couple of different things, several, but two that I'll mention. One of them is I have lived near the city of San Jose for a long time. And I feel like there's really an opportunity in San Jose to create a better city. 
and to advocate for more green spaces within the city as as this next kind of wave of redevelopment is happening. So I've been working on that and convening some people who really can help to define what great would look like in that. I feel like right now working on smaller scale rather than kind of global is really good for me. And then I'm interested in California housing, working on a couple of how we deal with that, working on that. But the one that I'm spending most of my time on is the intersection between forest restoration, forest health, regeneration. How do we make our wild places more resilient to climate change and wildfire? And particularly on forestry, how that's connected with the mass timber industry. A lot of the projects that I was working on at Google right before I left were mass timber. One of those is just finishing construction right now. And I was deeply concerned, and as the team at Google is, about the sourcing of mass timber. And will that in some way have unintended consequences on the health of our forests? So that, this wildfire started weirdly, the very week that I mentioned earlier, the very week that I left Google. So it was like, if I was questioning what I could work on, it was the problem was like right in front of my eyes. I've now seen the amount of what they call wildfire salvage timber that needs to be dealt with after a wildfire. I'm working on how do you connect the use of that timber with the mass timber industry. I'm not sure where this will go, but I mention it because I have to believe that others are beginning to connect the dots on that as well. And I really think that it has something, a positive approach to this could have a great outcome on mass timber, which has great promise for reducing our carbon footprint in buildings, but only if we source it well. And building back more resilient forests after there's a disaster like this or preventing them in the future. So that whole cycle is just fascinating to me. Not sure where it's going to take me, but I'm really interested. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And so to dig in a little bit more, because I have so many questions on. So after a fire, the timber, the trees that have maybe burned or come down, or maybe they're not... I don't know if the word's salvageable, but they're, they're not going to continue to grow on because of the fire. So those are the ones you're talking about that potentially they are then can be pulled from the fire space and reused in some sense. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, many of them are burned so that they're dead. They're not going to come back. There is some thinking that they should stay in place because they create habitat and then they store carbon when they're not chipped or burned or removed. And also the removal of them can really disturb the soil. There's one kind of group of thinking that says that's what you should do. There are others who say, get that timber out of there as quickly as possible because it's not useful beyond 18 months. And I think the answer is probably some, I'll send you some photographs, but oh, yeah. Um, because I've been spending this last year just photographing and seeing what does really happen. What is the answer? I think the answer is probably somewhere in between. And I believe that there are some foresters who really are doing this well. I think a lot of the tribal forests are figuring out. They figured it out a long time ago, and we're now figuring out that they had the answers a long time ago. So the interesting thing is that 
even the experts, because the size, and this was a million acres, this particular fire. I think because of the size and the intensity of these fires, we haven't seen them before. So the answers, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, the answers are still going to be forthcoming as we study this in the coming years and begin to develop predictive models that are more accurate for forest health. Would that be the same thing about, you think about like what's happening or what happened in Fort Myers with a hurricane? So maybe there are more hurricanes coming and all these trees that are just completely yes. pulled out of their roots and they're just laying there. So when you look at this destruction of the trees and on these areas of hurricane routes, it's devastating. So I wonder if that's another they can use. I never, I never thought about it being used that way. That's fascinating. I think it's exactly that. Also the beetle kill pine that we, in fact, one of the other last projects that I worked on was one where they just used wood that was from beetle killed wood. But I think that's right. How do we more effectively use salvaged timber as opposed to cutting down green timber and restore the land after these disasters as opposed to really creating more havoc by trying to take it out and not doing that well? I want to put a caveat here, though. I have absolutely no expertise on this topic. I'm fascinated by it. I'm studying You're getting it. there. You're definitely I'm getting observing it there. <laughs> it. I want to advocate for the right thing. But in design, I can talk about that and feel like, oh, I have a lot of expertise. But in this, I'm really, really trying to understand it. So I could be saying something here that's not helpful. No, I think oh, it's really I think interesting. Your, um, yeah, your willingness to dive in and weed through these questions is going to be probably invaluable as you continue your work on it. That's really exciting to hear about it. Well, is there anything else you want to add or share with us? I definitely would love to dig into mass timber, but I think we're running up against time. That could be a whole other <laughs> I podcast. I guess maybe a question might be like, what's next for biophilia in the built environment? Gosh, I hope that the various organizations who are working on biophilia can come together, agree upon what good looks like, what the outcomes are that we're trying to achieve, observe where we have projects that are actually doing that, and then come back and measure the outcomes. I really just think it's that whole cycle of, for our industry not to be confusing, because there are a number, you all are doing great work on this. There are a number of organizations, Biophilic Cities, ILFI, number of organizations that are doing great work on this. So my hope is that there's some connection between them and some agreement on what good is and finding ways to work together to measure those outcomes. Wow. That's a perfect way to leave it. Absolutely. Mary, thank you so much for your time today. We so appreciate your sharing of your wisdom and your thoughts, and we can't wait to the next time we speak again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been great to talk with you too. Thank you, Mary. Jennifer, that was a fascinating conversation. And the first thing I'd really like to dive into is the idea of the early days of Mary's career when she stated office design was really all about cubicles and partitions, which I remember sitting in. Um, <laughs> Me too. It was really <laughs> was awful with no concerted effort to do anything besides getting our butts into seats. However, it sounds like she was savvy enough, and so were Google's founders and leaders, to recognize that incorporating nature as a biophilic design principle into the workplace had the power to absolutely transform what an office environment could look and feel like. 
right? And then to think about scaling that to the campus level design, where it really is so much more than just rented office space. It's the whole network or ecosystem that fulfills a variety of needs for a huge number of people. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting when she described how biophilic design felt really intuitive to her, as well as the Google's founders, yet they needed to bring in the Bill Brownings and Jody Herwagons of the world for proof of concept because other executives and partners, you know, needed more metrics and sort of that hard data evidence. Yeah. And something we always talk about that I really loved was the importance of a place and establishing a real firm sense of a place. I think it's really interesting that the Living Building Challenge has identified place as one of their major criteria. Yes. And it brings us back to the conversation that we had about Strode's, which signify the opposite. You know, part of the reason that Strode's are so depressing is that their sense of placelessness that Mary talked about. She's so right that these placeless environments cut off the most marginalized groups even further which circles back into the relationship between tree canopy, health disparities, and crime rates, which was really interesting. I know that we can achieve so much by simply prioritizing access to nature across all cities and places. And I do think that that, the placemaking concept has a big role to play. Oh my gosh, absolutely. I also think our current fascination with timber is something we should dive into more on this podcast. That was so incredibly interesting to me. Yeah, really fascinating. And she was clear, she's not the authority on it, yet she does seem to really have her arms around the issues with salvage timber versus green timber versus should we leave felled or fire-consumed trees for animal habitats. You know, I'd love to interview someone who can speak to all of these competing ideas, but also have the balance of like, is it a good biophilic approach to be using so much timber? Yeah, it's so interesting. That'd be great. Okay. Well, as always, we have a bunch of resources in our show notes for anyone who wants to learn more. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. All right. Talk to you later, Jen. Bye, Monica. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement.